good to see you today. We're so grateful for your presence. We're very thankful for the opportunity to be together the first day of the week. We have visitors with us, and as always, we would love to have you come back and be with us again. Very grateful for the number of visitors who come our way every week, and we want you to know how much we appreciate you. If you are looking for a church home, we often invite you to consider the work here. We would more we would Love to have you come and be a part of the work here at Olive Branch. I know the elders would be more than happy to meet with you, and they would do their best to answer any questions that you might have. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8, the passage Jordan read a moment ago. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. As we think about the theme, the conversion of a powerful man. The book of Acts really provides us with a template of the birth of the church. When you begin reading the book of Acts, Luke narrates for us the birth, infancy, and amazing growth of the church. On many occasions, the Bible will talk about the multitudes who became obedient to the gospel. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost Day, the day on which the church began, the Bible says some 3,000 people responded to the preaching of Peter and the other apostles and were baptized into Christ. In chapter 4, we read about multitudes again of people hearing the word and believing. And the Bible says the number of men came to about 5,000. And then in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, Luke would say, and the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. So from a broad vantage point, we have occasions where multitudes of unnamed people are said to have obeyed the gospel. And then there are some very specific accounts of individuals who had the opportunity to hear the gospel and they responded favorably and thus became New Testament Christians. In Acts chapter 8, we read about one specific man by the name of Simon the sorcerer who was baptized into Christ in the city of Samaria along with a host of other people. And then down in verse 26 and following, Luke talks about another individual who specifically is identified a man of great authority, a man of great responsibility, who had the opportunity to hear the gospel and ultimately become a Christian. So I want us to think for a moment or two about the conversion of this very powerful man, unnamed, but we do know something about him, a little bit about him. I want to begin by first of all talking about the fact that there was an investigation. When you look at this text, there are really three primary points that stand out in my mind. Number one, there was an investigation. Number two, there was an explanation. And number three, there was salvation. So let's think for a moment or two about this investigation. Now, the Bible identifies this man. Listen to what is said in verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, and Philip was an evangelist. He had been in Samaria preaching Christ. And the Bible says both men and women were baptized in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. 
And the angel said to him, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza, of course, would have been a coastal city located on the Mediterranean. And so Luke tells us this is desert. In other words, it was an uninhabited place. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. First, I think about his responsibility. Here was a man of great authority. He had been entrusted with the oversight of the treasures of the queen of Ethiopia. Candace was simply a generic name used to identify the queen of Ethiopia, much like when we look back in history and think about those who lived in Egypt and how they operated under the Pharaoh. In the city of Rome, of course, we talk about the Roman Empire and the fact that the church began in the cradle of the Roman Empire and they referred to their leaders as Caesar. So this woman was a person of great authority and she had entrusted a great deal of responsibility into the hands of this man who was a eunuch. And then we learn something about his religion. The Bible says that he has been to Jerusalem to worship. I would take this to mean that he was probably a proselyte to the Jewish religion. And so as a result of that, he had gone to Jerusalem for the specific purpose of worshiping God. So we learn a little bit about his identity and then let's think about his investigation. First, Luke tells us that he was meditating on the scriptures. Listen to what it said. He's sitting in his chariot and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. Now you think about, they didn't have the luxury of a completed Bible as we have today. So this man would have had a scroll. And as he is returning back to his homeland, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, he is reading Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, of course, as you know, has to do with the Messiah, Jesus. Isaiah, really the book of Isaiah is the gospel in miniature form in many ways. Isaiah is looking down into time and he's talking about that day when the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, would make his entrance into the world. In chapter 2, he would talk about the kingdom or this exalted mountain that the Lord would establish into which all nations would flow. In chapter 9, he would tell us that the coming Messiah would be identified as wonderful counselor, everlasting God, the Prince of, Feet, Prince of Peace. In chapter 7, verse 14, he announces the virgin birth. And then in chapter 53, in a very graphic way, Isaiah talks about the death of God's suffering servant. So this man is meditating on the scripture. But based on what Luke says, he had a misunderstanding of the scripture. When Philip comes in contact with the eunuch, he asked a simple but profound question. He said, do you understand what you're reading? 
And you know, sometimes we read things and we don't necessarily understand what we're reading. It's good sometimes to ask the question, what, what's the writer saying here? What's the intent of his writing? To whom is he writing, etc.? And so the eunuch responds by asking this question, how can I, unless someone guides me? And then I think to further illustrate the misunderstanding of the scripture, down in verse 34, the eunuch asks this question, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other man? So he's intrigued by what he's reading. He's investigating. He's meditating on the scripture. And how many times have you found yourself meditating and pouring over the word of God? And you're asking yourself, okay, what does this mean? What's it saying to me? What's the application? Well, here's a guy that's pouring over the scriptures. And he wants to understand exactly what the prophet's talking about. So there is this investigation but then secondly, there is what I would call an explanation. You know, it's one thing to not understand what you're reading or to have misunderstandings about certain things. And when we are in the dark, so to speak, it's nice to have someone to shed light on what we're reading or what we're trying to understand. So that's exactly what Philip does on this occasion. So again, based on based on the question, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other man? Listen, if you would, to what Philip was said to have done. Verse 35. The Bible says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, what scripture? Well, look at verse 32. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and like a lamb, silent before its shearer. So he, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now, if you go back and read Isaiah 53, 1 through 12 in its entirety, it's really a very vivid and beautiful picture of God's suffering servant. And the fact that Jesus would bear our iniquities. He would justify the many, as Isaiah would say, on the cross. 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth, Isaiah penned these words and did so with clarity and accuracy. And so what Philip does is begin explaining the Scripture. There are two things I think that he does in this context. First, he identifies the focus of the prophecy. And then secondly, the fulfillment of the prophecy. Now, you and I have the luxury of having God's completed revelation, don't we? When Isaiah wrote, they had limited portions of God's revelation concerning his redemptive plan. Basically, they had bit by bit, piece by piece, line by line. And God is unfolding his redemptive plan. And so it would be natural for those who lived under that Old Testament regime to have questions about the coming of the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom. And there were a lot of 
There, were, there was a lot of misunderstanding regarding the spiritual nature of that kingdom and their king. But nonetheless, Philip here identifies with clarity the focus of this prophecy and the fulfillment of it. The Bible says that he preached unto him Jesus. Now again, you think about Isaiah is writing, pointing to that coming in time when Jesus would come. I mentioned a moment ago Isaiah 7, 14, where Isaiah talks about the virgin birth. Matthew affords us insight into this prophecy, announces the birth of Christ, the fact that that which had been conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. And he said, she shall bring forth a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. And Matthew says, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So there is the revelation of the focal point of the prophecy and then the fulfillment of that prophecy. In chapter 2, Matthew identifies the birthplace of the Christ, that being Bethlehem of Judea. So, there is an explanation of the scripture and then an explanation of Jesus. If somebody were to ask you about Jesus, and let's just say that the person that you're talking to has what we would call limited information. They really don't know a lot about Jesus and think about people in our day and time. When I, was, when I was a young fella growing up in Chattanooga, most people in our country believed in the God of the Bible. They believed in the inspired word of God, by and large. Most people had some knowledge of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I would say just about everybody in our country had a pretty good understanding of Jesus. That's not so today. We live in a nation today that in many ways has become polytheistic. And so we're battling, we're battling a number of different quote-unquote religions. For example, Islam would be one. So people just don't know a lot about Jesus. And so somebody asks you the question, okay, who was Jesus? Philip identifies the man Jesus. The Bible says he preached Jesus. Wouldn't you start by talking a little bit about the pre-existent Christ? In other words, go back and talk about the eternal nature of Jesus. Micah, in Micah chapter 5, foretold of the birthplace of Christ, that being Bethlehem. And he said, speaking of the coming Messiah, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. In other words, from the days of eternity. Micah talking about the pre-existent Christ. And then in John chapter 1, John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. To tell people, okay, the man Jesus, he was the God-man. Jesus existed in a pre-incarnate state, that is, before he tabernacled in human flesh before he assumed bodily form, and then he took upon himself human flesh, the incarnate Christ. And so John would say in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, 
glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we would want to tell, tell people something about Jesus, his nature, his identity. Jesus himself asked on one occasion, who do men say that I the son of man am? And Jesus wanted to know, okay, what, what are people saying about me? Because it's imperative that people understand something about the nature of Jesus. And you remember they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Jesus then asked the question, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter spoke up and he said, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So what we would want to do, like Philip, would be to stress the deity of Christ. When Philip went down to the city of Samaria, the Bible says that he preached things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he talked about the church, the kingdom that Jesus had promised to establish. He would have talked about Jesus and his authoritative word. But note also, not only would there have been a stress, not only would he have, not only would he have stressed the man Jesus, but what about the mission of Jesus? Don't you think he would have said something about why Jesus, the God-man, came to earth? I mean, why did Jesus come to earth? The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus tasted death for every man. Jesus would say in Luke 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to save lost people, didn't he? And that was really in fulfillment of God's design. In Luke 24, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told the apostles, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written about me in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets. What did they write about? The death of God's suffering servant? the fact that he would bear the sin of many, that he would be raised from the dead. And so to know something about the mission of Jesus. Now there's a third thing I want to share with you in our study. And that has to do with salvation because not only was there an investigation, there was an explanation and there was salvation. So note if you would again in verse 35. The Bible says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, Isaiah 53, preached Jesus to him, the exalted name of Christ, the name by which all will be saved. Do you remember Jesus said in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you remember Peter and John said in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so salvation according to Peter and John and Philip and others resided in only one person, that was in Jesus. And only in one place, and again, that would be Jesus. So note if you... Note, if you would, something about the reception of the eunuch. 
In verse 35, as I mentioned a moment ago, Philip opens his mouth, he preaches Jesus to him. Verse 36, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. A couple of things here. First and foremost, this man was receptive to Christ, wasn't he? And there's no doubt that he came to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Because the Bible says he acknowledged that, that he believed Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That took teaching, didn't it? It took an explanation of Scripture to say to him, look, you need to understand, Jesus is somebody different. He's not just a mere human being, but rather he was God in the flesh. As Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. You've got to believe that he is that self-existent one. This man believed that. And how does faith come? Paul said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he believed in Christ. He believed Jesus was the son of God. Not only did he believe in Christ, but the Bible says he was baptized into Christ. Now, let me ask this question. How would he have known anything about baptism? Does the text reveal to us that Philip in preaching Jesus, does it explicitly say that he preached the importance of New Testament baptism? Listen again to what Luke said. Verse 35. Philip opened his mouth, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. As they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Okay, why the emphasis on being baptized? Well, number one, baptism is Christ-centered, isn't it? Because Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. Not only is it Christ-centered, it is cross-centered. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul said that we are baptized into the death of Jesus and that we rise to walk in newness of life, cross-centered, Christ-centered. But then, let me share this with you. We are saved by the blood of Christ, aren't we? There are a number of components that we read about in Scripture that bring about salvation. In other words, salvation would not be, a, we wouldn't have salvation were it not for the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. But the Bible tells us that we are saved by His blood. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul said, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, okay? If we are saved by the blood of Christ, and that's what the Bible teaches, the question then that we need to ask is this, how then do we contact the blood of Christ? In order to appropriate the blood of Jesus, we have to go where it was shed. Jesus shed his blood in death. That's what John said in John chapter 19, verses 34 and 35. 
Salvation is in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. And the only way that we can get into Christ is by being baptized into Christ. Now, I said a moment ago that, that we're saved by the blood, but in order to appropriate that blood, we must go where it was shed. It was shed in death, John 19, 34 and 35. So in Romans chapter 6, listen to Paul. Know you not that all you who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. When we are baptized into Christ, like the eunuch, first and foremost, we contact the blood of Jesus, which washes away all of our sins. So we contact the blood of Christ, without which we couldn't be saved. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. And then we are baptized into his body that is in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said, by one spirit were you all baptized into one body. In other words, when you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, you contact the blood of Christ and you are added to the body of Christ, which is the church. Now, sometimes people ask the question, well, why do I need to be in the church? What's so important about being a part of the church? Well, to understand that the church is, the church is a part of God's redemptive plan. As a matter of fact, Jesus and the church are inseparable. In Ephesians 5, verse 23, Paul said, that Jesus is the Savior of the body, and the body's the church, Colossians 1.18. So by being baptized into Christ, we contact the blood of Christ, and we're added to the body of Christ. That's what the eunuch did. What the eunuch did and what multitudes of people have done since then is the exact same thing. Because if we do what they did in the first century, then we become what they were, which is nothing but a New Testament Christian a member of the body of Christ. Now there's a second thing. We talk about the eunuch's reception of Christ and then the Bible talks about the eunuch's rejoicing in Christ. Note if you would, verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing his happiness in Christ. Why do you think he was so joyful? Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 in verse 20, rejoice, why? Because your names are written in heaven. This man was now a saved person. He was a child of God. He enjoyed every single spiritual blessing that the Bible talks about. I mean, you think about it, here's somebody who formerly was outside of Christ, now he's in Christ, Formerly, he had no spiritual blessings. Now he has all spiritual blessings. So we read of his happiness in Christ, and then what about his hope in Christ? The beauty of obeying the gospel, of being simply a New Testament Christian, is summed up by Paul in Titus chapter. And let's just say that you believe Jesus and you, like the eunuch, have been investigating and searching 
And you've been over and over again pouring over the scriptures. And you've been thinking about becoming a Christian. Why not do it today? Why not do what he did in the long ago and become what he was, a Christian? What would you need to do? Exactly what we said a moment ago. Believe Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess his name before others. Be baptized into Christ so, you, so that you can contact the blood of Christ. You'll be a part of the body of Christ. And you have the hope of heaven. And then just live faithfully. And the promise is the crown of life. If you're here today, and maybe your life is not what it ought to be, and you want to make things right with the loving God, maybe you need the prayers of the church. Maybe because of sin in your life, maybe because you're struggling and you just need people to pray for you. We would be happy to pray with you and for you today as we stand and sing.